Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. Katie and Arlene again, you know, just like chatting, trying to figure out what happened in the past week, how another week has passed. And we're back here uh, updating you guys about what's going on. So, Katie, how are things in Iowa these days? Well, Arlene, as I was just telling you, I just did an emergency guinea pig cleaning cage cleaning, not the actual guinea pig. The actual guinea pig is clean enough. The guinea pig did not need a bath. We have a a second guinea pig coming on Thursday, a a baby brother for this one, because apparently, I guess like in Europe, maybe it's illegal to keep a solitary guinea pig because they're considered to be such um, social creatures. So I'm hoping that perhaps having a better example of how social a guinea pig could be will help this one. Or maybe... To actually allow people to touch it or interact with it. Well, and also guinea pigs are supposed to be, like, obsessed with fresh produce. And this one will eat dried apricots. And that's it. Like, none of the things that guinea pigs are supposed to be willing to, like, shank a person for. So I'm hoping that perhaps... Right. So it's not helping you with your compost situation at all. Well, and it's not helping me with my guinea pig bribery situation that... He is apparently such a moral creature that he cannot be bought with fresh produce. Um, So we're getting a second guinea pig from a guinea pig rescue, which is apparently a thing. Um, And it's it's very exciting. So other than that, um, the guys bought a new baler on Saturday and brought it home. New, new or new to you? Uh, New to us. New, new to, I don't think it's as old as I am, but it's probably fairly close, which still makes it newer than most of our equipment. Got it. Yes. I was thinking, yeah, that new equipment is not really your farm's thing. No, it's it's not really a thing. The boy child yesterday was asking me if he could take his snack and his drink up to, quote unquote, lax in mommy and daddy's bed. And I couldn't figure out why he was so insistent that he needed to be in our bed instead of his. And then I realized that The guys were baling cornstalk bales in the field that is visible from our window and not from his. So he was spent, I think, close to an hour just laying in our bed, eating his snack and watching the baler. Yeah, so it was the best best viewing station. Which was fine. And he could have been outside, but it was real windy and it was cold. He seems happy. Other than that, not a whole hell of a lot. Just doing a thing. It's closing in on American Thanksgiving which comes earlier every year, I think, or winter comes sooner or something. I don't know. Same old. What's going on in uh, the mighty, mighty north there, Arlene? Well, we all survived the Roe Winter Fair week. Um, Everybody, for the most part, got where they needed to go. We made multiple trips to Toronto in different vehicles and with different people, um, like I said, we had some 4-H kids there at the beginning of last week. And then later in the week, we actually were showing some animals in the National Holstein show um, in the heifer classes. So that was a first for us, showing showing animals in, in that 
big venue. So that was pretty exciting. Um, we were not last. So that was kind of the, the main goal for the first time is to, to not be the very last. So we, there were some huge classes. I think the one had like 50 heifers in it. So um, not being last even in that class was uh, an accomplishment. Um, yeah, everyone seemed, yeah. Well, that's a great goal too, because I mean, of how many probably million dairy heifers there are in Canada being not last in that many is still ahead of how many other million dairy heifers. There you go. Yeah. We were there and other people weren't. So, you know, it's like the Olympics, like being fifth in the Olympics is still better than all but five of the other or four of the other athletes in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it was exciting to be there. We were tied in with some other farms from Eastern Ontario who we're friends with. So that was really nice to get to hang out with other people and be around the barns and all the excitement of that. For people who haven't been to the Roe Winter Fair, it is a fair in the aspect of like the livestock part. Um, and there's horse shows and stuff, but it's not a fair in that it's all indoors and there's no like rides or anything like that. So it it really is just a kind of a trade show. There's lots of food. So that's a great, great uh, venue for me because there's lots of different types of foods you can try and lots of people there with animals, but there aren't actually, no, it's not like state fair kind of fair because there's none of that other stuff. So are there like poultry and hogs and sheep and things, or is it just cows and horses? Yeah. Yeah. There's all that stuff too. Um, not as much poultry as there used to be. Um, but I think more because of the avian flu stuff. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a pig show, there's big beef show, sheep, goats, milking goats, all different kinds of horses. And, um, yeah. And then the dairy animals. So not quite as many classes as at say expo. Um, we don't have as many brown Swiss or, uh, some of the other breeds as, as you do in the States, but yeah, there's a red and white Holsteins, Holstein show, Jersey show, and a small, small Ayrshire show is what's left in the, on the dairy side. So that was our week. And so far, no one is sick. What I'm hearing you say is that you need to switch to Ayrshire's so that you can dominate, is what I'm hearing. I think it's probably more likely that the Ayrshire show might eventually not be there anymore because there are so few people. Well, don't say that. That's horrible. But yes. There are very, there's a limit, right, to how many animals you have before they, they'll kind of drop you as a, as a viable uh, show. So yeah, I have a feeling. I mean, I sh yeah, we don't have Ayrshire's and I don't think that we will. So yeah. That show may not be much longer, but maybe those exhibitors can go to Expo instead. And yeah, normally people come home with the royal flu. So no sign of that yet. I should knock on wood because we could still get it. But all these farmers coming from different places who hardly ever see people and then uh, all get together. And plus being in, you know, cold, breezy buildings and in and out of apartments and hotels and wherever wherever everyone is trying to find places to stay makes it a, a good place to get sick. Well, and I'm sure, too, with all those folks having kids who are bringing shit home from school and then all bringing it to a public place with, you know, gas stations and hotels and restaurants. and blah. Yeah, that's right. And it's right downtown Toronto. So there's lots of school tours that come through as well. So there's lots of people from all over the place. Yeah, so that kind of took up most of the week. Pink eye got cleared up, so that was good. And uh, now we're entering into, uh, you're into American Thanksgiving for you and birthday season for me. So we have uh, three birthdays over the next little while. So that'll be taking up some of my time. And plus, you know, catching up from being away for a little while too. 
Wolfenute is on the 23rd, which is American Thanksgiving. But if any of you Canadians are feeling left out, it is the the day to celebrate our canine companions and the spirit of the wolf. It was started by a boy who was, I think, seven when he started it in Australia, perhaps New Zealand, several years ago now. So if you're feeling left out and you need something to celebrate, or if you're American and you just hate Thanksgiving, or if you want to celebrate two things, do that. There you go. You know, live on the edge. Do that. Give your canine companion some leftover turkey or something. There you go. All right. Shall we introduce our guest for the week? I suppose we should. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are excited to be talking to Pam Martin, who is joining us from not too far away from me and here in eastern Ontario. So Pam, we start each of our interviews with the same question, and this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we always ask, what are you growing? So for our farmers, that can cover crops and livestock, but also includes kids and businesses and all kinds of other stuff. So what are you growing? So our main thing here that we're growing is Christmas trees. We are a uh, Christmas tree farm. We're one of the larger ones in eastern Ontario. Um, we also do cash cropping as well. Uh, we have a couple of other farms as well. So we do um, some cash crop. However, our oldest son is uh, taking over more and more of that. So that leads into the other thing we're growing is uh, for farm kids, four boys, and uh, we're also trying to grow our business and our brand here at Cedar Hill Christmas Tree Farm. Very cool. How old are all those boys? I, I have seen pictures and I know they're getting very big. Yes, yes. I'm officially the shortest in my house. Uh, I took a while for me to admit that, but uh, I'm there now. So they are 21, 20, 19, and 15. Right. And is everybody still at home or close to home? Uh Yes. Well, our second oldest is at Ridgetown uh, in his second year studying horticulture. He seems to have uh, an interest here at the farm and is down there um, for a few reasons to get off the farm, have a few years of fun, meet some people and uh, hopefully learn a few things along the way as well. That's an added bonus, right? When you go to school. Yeah. If you can learn some things, that that's good. Yes. Yeah. I think, Pam, it's really good for farm kids to have at least one boss that they're not related to as well. Just, you know, some experience with humans outside their family. That's something we uh, we pretty much insist with our kids is they all work off the farm. Um, not necessarily full time, you know, not necessarily career wise, but to work for other people, um, our three oldest have all started or dabbled in running their own businesses, whether it's farming related, non-farming related, um, tree arborist, those types of things. Uh, so that's something that we're really passionate about is you have to step outside the farm. You have to see what else is out there, because if you want to come back to the farm, th that's a decision you have to make after you've been outside of the world a bit. So did you grow up in ag or what's your background? So uh, my background is I grew up two blocks from where I live now. Um, my parents own Fulton Sugarbush, which is also up here in Cedar Hill. So I was raised in a very similar industry that I'm in now, which is agritourism. So, of course, you know, with the maple side, you've got the production side, but you also have the business side. Uh, back when I was a kid, it was a pancake house restaurant, a thriving um spring destination. Uh, I don't think I appreciated 
what I was learning when I was a kid. I don't think I uh, realized how much I was retaining and learning about business, about marketing, things like that. I was a math and science girl. So after high school, I went to the University of Guelph, where I took a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture. And in reading week of fourth year, I uh, got married and uh, moved up to a dairy farm. I swore I would never, ever marry a dairy farmer. Same here. Yeah. Didn't work out at all as I had planned. And uh, lo and behold, I uh, got married, moved on to a dairy farm in Midwestern Ontario near um, Listowel. We were there. uh, We got married in 99. In 2015, we started humming and hawing a bit about, is this what we want to do for the rest of our lives? And it was a really difficult decision because it was Grant's home farm, my husband's home farm. But we started just feeling like, you know, is there something else out there? And, and the other thing that weighed heavily into our decision is if we sell, you know, a, a profitable, um, successful dairy farm, um, what if one of our kids wants to be a dairy farmer someday? Because Getting back into dairy farming is next to impossible. Uh, anybody in with knowledge of the quota system, whether it dairy, eggs, feather, whatever, knows just how hard that can be. So we knew that we wanted to do something different. But Grant is a farmer. My husband is a farmer. He has to farm. So it took a while to find the right fit for us. And... Uh, just kind of at that time, we realized that um, this farm had come for sale. It's not a farm uh, that was in our family. It's just the neighbor's farm. I, I've known it all my life. And uh, we started talking with them. And it, it took a lot of discussion, sleepless nights, um, talking it over. Because not only were we selling Grant's Home Dairy Farm, We would also be moving our kids, who at the time were grade 10, grade 8, grade 7, and grade 3, moving them six hours away from all their friends, from everyone they knew. And that, although now they're really happy they moved, there was a bit of resistance at the time, you know, to uproot. And uh, and I mean, they knew some people here. We had lots of family here. This is where I'm from. I was moving back to my stomping grounds, but it's still a hard thing for a 15-year-old boy to process. So it was a huge decision. Uh, Once the decision was made, selling the dairy farm was equally a huge undertaking. Um, You know, there's a limited market. Um, It's made somewhat more difficult by DFO keeping back 10% of your quota. It makes it harder for the new farmer to make a go of it when, of course, you know, right off the docket, you're down 10% of your quota. So we did, um, it ended up that I moved here August 30th of 2016 with the boys, because at that point we had taken ownership of the Christmas tree farm, but we didn't have the dairy farm sold yet. So Grant stayed back on the dairy farm near Ethel and he um, was, it almost, it almost just about killed him because he lost me and all the boys as labor. So not only were we separated as a family, but you know, the dairy farm chores don't get less because there's fewer of us there. And you're going into fall and harvest and all. Yeah, exact harvest and everything. And in the meantime, I had moved here. I'm trying to get four boys situated into new schools. Um, I'm trying to start this new business. 
get this retail shop ready and merchandised and make like get everything done. So that fall was pretty intense. We ended up um, the farm, the dairy farm sale closed November 1st of 2016. Grant moved here November 4th of 2016 and the Christmas tree farm opened that season November 12th. So he had lived here eight days before we were open for seven days a week for the season. So it's one of those moments in life that you live through it. And then you look back later and you think, how in heaven's name did we ever live through that time? Yeah. How did we manage that? Yeah. How did we manage and getting the kids settled? You know, our oldest wasn't thrilled with being here, but um, thankfully he's a really athletic kid, got uh, put onto the Almont High School football team, excelled in that, and uh, then then he was away to the races. So I was going to ask about some of the early challenges when it came to that transition, and obviously that time was probably the most challenging. But what were some of the other things that you, I mean, you're going into a completely different industry than you were ever in before. What other challenges came up in those first weeks and months that you had to kind of work through? Uh, some of the biggest challenges were just that huge learning curve because in a way, Christmas trees are just another crop, but they're a very different crop from, you know, beans, corn, whatever. Um, if you need more corn next year, you plant a couple more acres and you've got more corn. Uh, you know, we have an eight-year growing cycle, so... One of the first uh, issues we ran into was just understanding our supply, figuring out how uh, that was going to work, um, just getting my staffing in place because all of a sudden, hey, here's your new boss. You've never met her. Congratulations. Uh, hope it all works out for the best. Um, so it actually went really smoothly. A lot of that is due to the family support we have here because my mom... And my brother and sister live just up the road. Like I say, they have lived, grown, been raised at Fulton's. So they are completely familiar with uh, marketing, business, customer relations. Uh, Mom was a great asset in helping me locate, like, uh, who can I get printing done? Like, where do I get brochures made in Elmont? You know, so having those resources was absolutely huge. Um, I think the biggest struggle was just getting through the exhaustion because we arrived exhausted um, and the seven day a week was a grind. So I have to say that first uh, Christmas day of 2016, I, I don't even know how long we slept. It was just such a relief that we'd lived through it. Um, we all were alive. You know, the season went really well. And finally, we had a day off. It was it was a pretty awesome feeling. Yeah, because I mean, as much as dairy farming is seven days a week, you're now seven days a week and having to face the public all the time. Like for, you know, I'm a dairy farmer myself and there are days go by where I don't see anybody and you're having to put on a smiley face and and talk to people all day, every day for the whole, all of November and December. I'm sure that that is exhausting in a whole different way. You know, it it's, I have to say 99% of our customers are awesome uh, it's just an absolute joy. This is a happy place. It's magical at Christmas. Um, you know, our staff is absolutely phenomenal. There are the few thorns in my side who, you know, you always get some grumpy customers. And and 
those are the ones that you think about at night, you lose sleep over, um, can make the days a bit long, but for the most part, it was, it was pretty awesome. But, um, yeah, that, that first, you know, Christmas break that we had, you know, we were, it, it almost like felt like we were just still in shock and, and coming like awakening to, Oh, like, yeah, this is our new reality. So Pam, I'm going to interject a question here. Um, do you guys put up a tree or are you, are you so <laughs> over it by the end of the season that you're just like, no. Actually, no, we do put up a tree. We usually have our tree up ridiculously early in November. Um, I have to admit, though, we don't really decorate in our house because during our Christmas season, um, I'm generally here. My average day is about 14 hours, seven days a week. We, we really just um, sleep at home. Other than that, we're never there. Um, we actually, uh, in 2021 here, we built a new building, a wreath shop building for our uh, our ladies to build our wreath planter centerpieces, et cetera, et cetera. And we also added a full staff room and kitchen. So that is now where I actually try to make meals as best as possible um, during our crazy season. So we really don't even eat at home. Um, so no, people must, people always say to me, oh my gosh, your house must look look amazing. And I kind of like, uh, actually, no, our Christmas shop looks amazing. The shop looks great. <laughs> yeah. The shop's amazing. And this is where I get my Christmas fix because I'm in it uh, pretty much like we started setting the shop up. My niece got married here this year. We don't do weddings, by the way. That was just the family deal. But uh, my niece got married here September 9th. We then opened Thanksgiving weekend and it was seven days a week, 14 hour days getting the shop set up. So the shop is absolutely spectacular. This is where I get my Christmas fix. We do have a tree, but it's um, it's not the winter wonderland in my house that people might expect. Well, then on Boxing Day, you don't have to clean up, though, other than throw the tree at the door, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. Because honestly, we... Uh, we close at two o'clock on Christmas Eve and uh, we take off Christmas Day. We actually have started a new family tradition where we go into the city of Ottawa. We go out to the Mandarin Chinese buffet for Christmas dinner because I cannot even imagine cooking a massive meal for anyone. Um, and then we take that day off and we're back into the city on Boxing Day doing shopping, getting ready for our next season. So people always ask me when I start thinking about Christmas. And usually it's about 7 a.m. on Boxing Day for the next year. The other question I had was if your tree at home is, you know, an aesthetic uh, Martha Stewart wonderland or if it's like all the ugly crap that your kids brought home when they were little. But it sounds like maybe it's good if it's got decorations on it. So to be part to be perfectly honest, generally our tree, it's its only about three feet tall. It sits up in our bay window. It has lights and an angel. And it's really just so when people are driving past our house, um, taking the tractor ride out to the tree field that they see our tree. But last year there was two ornaments on it in total. <laughs> I think that's about all our tree got last year. That so. checks out. Yeah. But like I say, we have a gorgeous decorated tree here in the Christmas tree shop and uh, it's spectacular. So, so. My my one other question, I was thinking about this at like 4.30 this morning because that's who I am. With the, the progress in technology, you know, that we're looking at, like, there are people living in outer space, you, you all of this. How long is it going to take for us to get pre-lit real trees? 
because stringing lights is such a... <laughs> I know. I know. I don't think I need to even finish that, you know? There's got to be a way. There's got to be a way, but um, I'm about the world's least techie person. And I think one of my biggest failures in parenting, I always hoped I was going to have that one really techie kid who I could like pass the TV remote to and say, fix this and give them my phone and say, fix this and do all my tech stuff. And I didn't get one of those. I have these kids that want to like run chainsaws and drive tractors and do manual work and milk cows. And I've got no techie person in my life. So you are asking the wrong person because getting headphones working for today was a stretch for me. Okay, I have I have one more question and then I will get back to what's on the script, Arlene. Does anyone say that they want to marry a dairy farmer growing up? Because I feel like every woman I know who's married to a dairy farmer and every man I know who's married to a dairy farmer said, I'll never marry a dairy farmer. And obviously people still do it. I've got a current University of Guelph scenario here for you. Now, this is this is like Canadian. So they have pub once a week, which is kind of like your all the Aggies go out and other people too. Um, so they had stoplight pub, which I'm old enough to that I had to get this explained to you. So you wear red if you're dating and taken, yellow if it's complicated, green if you're single, and apparently at Guelph you wear blue if you have quota. So that... That would lead me to believe that there are some people who do want to marry people with quota. So now quota could be chickens here in Canada, but quota also probably means that you're a dairy farmer. So uh, there must be there must be people out there. Now, the question is, it's that blue may also be a warning for other people to stay away from the quota. <laughs> yeah, either yeah, stay away or maybe that's what. Yeah, it, either way, it's a sign. <laughs> Absolutely. OK, well, now we can get back to what's actually on our on our page um oh and the next question's mine anyway isn't it so i hate even saying this especially since you already told us that you are also crop farmers what do you do the rest of the year and how early do you go out and pick out your tree so uh what do we do the rest of the year is a i think some people phrase that question differently and it's our least favorite question is they say to us so you only work for six weeks of the year what do you do the rest of the year? <laughs> and I guess I'll start our yearly farming cycle. I'll start in January. In January, I have a hot date with my slippers. I, I live in my slippers in my home office. I don't need to be dressed up for work. I don't need to be talking to customers. But I have an avalanche of paperwork on my desk that has been sorely neglected. Uh, usually all of November and December, I pay the bills. And that's all that gets done. The, the employees get paid, the bills get paid, everything else gets neglected. So month of November, or pardon me, January, February, it's all my accounting bills. We'd spend so much time analyzing our previous season, forecasting, projecting our sales, uh, making charts and graphs, trying to guess how many trees we're going to sell the next year, um, figuring out how many trees well we've we ha we order our seedlings in at least a year in advance but we figure out what fields we're going to plant them in uh what fields got cleaned out all those things i also start ordering our merchandise for our christmas shop in january january and february i spend hours online with one staff member uh, we have two laptops open with eight or ten shopping carts at a time on the go um, figuring out what ornaments and santas and gnomes and 
all the different things that we sell, what we're bringing in. We always work at sourcing more and more local vendors um, to support our local community as well. So uh, January to April, we call paperwork season. Starting in April, we're like any other farmer. We're out on the land as early as we can, as soon as the ground is dried off. We have no say in when our seedlings arrive, our tree seedlings. We get them from two nurseries. One is in Quebec. The other is north of Newmarket. The reason we have two suppliers is if anything ever goes wrong with one, we don't have all of our eggs in one basket. So although it can be inconvenient, uh, we do that just to safeguard ourselves. You know, if one of them goes out of business, if one of them has a disease issue. Um, so they'll give us about a week's warning maybe to say, hey, we're going to be pulling seedlings. Uh, once they get delivered here, though, it's all hands on deck. The only thing that matters is getting those seedlings in the ground. And it's even more pressing in a way than conventional cropping because a bag of corn seed is a bag of corn seed. It'll sit there for another month happily. But as soon as you pull a tree seedling, seedling out of the ground, it's dying. It needs to be replanted. So, of course, we do everything we can to keep them alive and healthy when they're out of the ground. We keep them dark we keep the roots covered roots are not meant to see uv light that'll kill the roots immediately we keep them moist we keep them uh, in a cooler but once the seedlings are here we usually have um on an on a good day we'd have between eight and ten of us working on planting the seedlings so grant who is still clinging on to his 40s for dear life for a few more months gets to drive the tractor uh i ride on the uh, we have a one-row, two-seat uh, tree planter that we use to plant the seedlings. So myself and uh, Jess, who works for me, we're in our 40s, so we get to ride the uh, planter. And then we have the um, the jobs for the people we call whose number starts with one, as in if you're still a teenager, <laughs> yeah, you get to uh, follow the planter. And every single tree that gets planted has to be straightened on its axis, so it's perfectly straight up. If you plant a seedling and the, it's crooked, it's going to grow crooked forever. So every tree has to be straightened and then every row has to be tamped in. So when the coulter cuts the trench to plant the seedling, we have to make sure all that ground is put back into the trench, packed in properly. And we also lay an irrigation line with the planter at the same time. So that's a couple of weeks of um, pretty intensive days. Um if the ground isn't quite ready, it's even more work. We have to hand plant. One year, I think we shoveled in 4,000 trees. Wow. Um, and it's not just drop the shovel in the ground, make a little slit and put the tree in. It's dig a hole and plant the tree. So that gets pretty intensive as well. So that's our, our early spring is planting. How many different varieties are you planting, Pam? Five main varieties, but we're starting to experiment more with some crossed varieties. So our most... Our premium tree, the one that's definitely the most popular, takes the longest to grow. It's kind of our princess of trees, is the Fraser fir. Uh, amazing needle retention. That's what we make all of our wreaths out of because, I mean, I, I have a wreath on my wall here in the office from 2017. It's brown as all get out. It weighs about half of what it did fresh, but it's still completely full of needles. Um, then our second most popular tree is the balsam. Again, it's a fir tree. And uh, then we move down to, we do, and that's probably 95% of our trees. Then we have a small section of white spruce, blue spruce, and scotch pine. And that's more the, 
specialty trees, the nostalgic trees of people who come and say, I've had a scotch pine since I was 10 years old. Um, you know, so, but the majority of our trees are the fir trees for sure. Sure. So Pam, now that answers my question. I was going to ask which tree would be like the Miss Universe of trees. Absolutely. The Fraser fir. I married into a family where, God love them, their preferred tree is to go out in the cattle pasture and cut a red cedar, which smells like cat pee and drops the sharpest, <laughs> nastiest needles on the twiggiest, nastiest little sticks. I'm sure they had a good reason for why they started this tradition. But we very luckily have friends who sell Christmas trees at their at their garden stand. You don't maintain that tradition in your house then, Katie? No, I do not, because it smells like cat pee and they're pokey. Yeah, no, we, um, you know, if you're looking for the nice smelling tree, that's the balsam and that's got that gorgeous evergreen smell that you're looking for. So no cat pee at our farm. Yeah, somewhere between it being red and smelling bad and pokey. Okay, so the trees are planted. So, oh, wait, Arlene, I had one more question. It has to actually do with planting trees. Um, how do you get all the root mass out from the trees that are cut? Okay, well, I'm going to continue my yearly cycle, and that will help you to understand kind of that, you know, because like anything in farming, it's a cycle. You don't know where to start. You don't know where to stop. It's just always continuous. So after we've got the trees planted, we're like any other farmer. We're fertilizing. We're doing pesticide control on uh, weed herbicides and weed control. Um, and then the one thing that most people do not know that we do is about mid-June, we have to manually take off all the pine cones from the balsam and the Fraser fir trees. So we have probably, I don't know, 80,000 trees on the ground right now. Most of those are balsam and Fraser. We have to go around and pick every single cone off of every tree. Some trees will have 700 cones on them. Um, so it's a huge job. It takes weeks um, to get that done. By about, usually around that time when the ground is good and dry, Maybe before planting, maybe after planting, everything depends on Mother Nature. Um, we have a 24-inch wide stump grinder that goes on the back of our biggest tractor, and it goes in creeper gear. And it basically is like a massive rototiller, and it just eats those tree stumps up. So when there's rows where all the trees have been harvested, we just grind it all up. And by the time that row is completed, I mean, you could plant carrot seeds in there. It's so fine. So that's how we get rid of our previous tree stumps. Um, then starting in about mid-July, we start shearing and pruning the trees. So that's shaping them. Uh, we do it. We had uh, our second son, Neil, is our lead tree guy. So that was his job this year. And he had uh, two teenage girls helping him. Um, Brooklyn Zebarth being one of them. Um, we like to have our uh, our country folk helping with that because it's... Uh, a relentless job it's you're out in 35 degree heat there's wasps um you know you're in full sun all day waving basically like a weed trimmer up and down um so they do the side of the trees and then they go back over the trees with hand pruners to do the top of the trees so that takes us a good five to six weeks to get all that done um back into the fall we're back into fertilizing uh, we do some foliar fertilizing. We do some broadcast fertilizing. We use some herbicides again for weed control in between the trees. Um, today, Grant is out putting price tags on every single tree that's for sale this year. So again, you know, a big job. Um, 
lots of different tree farms approach that idea differently. We've decided to price every tree individually because then there's no discrepancy. People will come here and think, I want a six foot tree. They always leave with an eight foot tree because everyone overestimates the size of the tree that they need. So some farms price based on the height of the tree after you've cut it. We stick a price tag on there so you know what that tree is going to cost before you get it into the yard and think, oh no, I just have a six foot tree and you're actually holding an eight foot tree. So that's uh, a fall job. And then uh, we move into the retail season. Yeah. So you don't really, like other than Christmas day, basically, you don't have a day off. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm joking. I have to say that Christmas tree farming is way more flexible. Um, you know, in the in this winter season, in the summers, we try not in the winter season, we might take a whole weekend off. Um, in the summer, we at least try to take Sundays off. Um, so, yeah, compared to dairy farming, it's it's just as much work, but it's more seasonal. And it doesn't have that undercurrent of chores 365 days of the year that dairy farming had. Of all the trees that get planted, what percentage do you think actually make it to be a tree that someone cuts down? Because I'm sure there's, you know, you're typically, you said about eight years or the Fraser firs are a little bit longer than that. Like kind of like how long from planting to what actually gets into someone's house? So when we get the seedlings, they're already four years old. Okay. Then they're here at our farm for we we say a foot a year. So if you're harvesting a six foot tree, it's been here for six years. If you're harvesting a 12 foot tree, it's probably been here for 12 years average. Um, our survivability of trees has increased dramatically since we started doing irrigation. When we first took the farm over, we weren't doing irrigation and we had a really bad uh, issue with death loss. I mean, like anything else, it needs water or it won't live. So we, uh, we now have two irrigation pumps. We have permanent uh, headers in the fields. We lay uh, drip tape, you know, between or like along the rows of all the trees. And so I'm guessing now our aim is to have a minimum of 90% survival rate to become a market and not necessarily a marketable tree. Some of our trees are uh, more princessy than others. Uh, some just, there's always the ugly duckling out there. Um, we also have issues with uh, deer damage. Deer love to eat Christmas trees, especially that new growth in the spring. It's like deer crack. Yeah, when there's nothing else growing on the ground yet, right? <laughs> yes, and so they they just nibble, nibble, nibble. So we actually, um, we utilize any of our ugly duckling trees to make our race planters and centerpieces. So they don't go to waste. Um, they will still get harvested unless the tree is yellow or discolored, then it's a garbage tree. If it's just, if it's still a lush, beautiful green tree, that's just kind of, you know, got a little bit of flat spot or a hole here, or just not really marketable. Uh, we're going to cut it, harvest it and turn it into something beautiful that we can still sell. Yeah, that's great. Do you sell as, I mean, I'm sure that your main business is trees, but do you sell as many wreaths and planters and those types of things as as trees at this point, or are you st you doing a variety? No, we definitely sell the most trees by far. Um, our wreath business has continued to expand. As I was saying, in 2020, but in 2020, uh, we were still making our wreaths in our main Christmas building in a little kind of corner. And there was one day I had four ladies working in here, and poor Diana Bull was out um, making planters outside on a rainy, gross day. And I thought, oh, something's got to give. So in uh, January of 2021, we 
decided we were going to build another building on the farm, which we did. Uh, it was completed, I think, by about July or August of that year. And we now have a dedicated wreath uh, shop for all the ladies to get to work indoors. We They call it the wreath palace. They're quite excited. Um, and so that has just allowed us to continue to increase our production capacity um, simply because we're not constrained by space. Sure. And are you only selling on site or do you sell trees to anyone else or planters or any of that kind of thing? Or is it just at your own location? So when we bought the farm, the farm was about 50% retail and 50% wholesale trees. Um, we quickly decided that we wanted to change that uh, because, of course, we make more money on a retail tree. Um, you know, you're you're selling it for almost twice of what you would get a wholesale tree for out of uh, the amount of money you'd get for a wholesale tree. And then when people come to the farm, they often don't leave with just a tree. They leave with a tree. They leave with a wreath. They come in. They have lunch at the restaurant. Uh, they buy ornaments. And, and we have this whole farm market now, we call it. Uh, we have all sorts of Ontario-grown stuff. We have honey and maple syrup and candies and chocolate bars and Mennonite-made pies and ciders and cheese and flavored milk like you name it we've got it all so people come uh they have the they spend the day here we don't charge an admission fee to the farm as a mom of four kids i understand that just getting your kids in the door can be really hard um when things cost as much as they do so people come they spend the day they have a blast they leave with their tree they leave with some ornaments maybe a wreath so financially it makes more sense to keep everything as retail so we have, uh, we very quickly uh, managed to transition the entire farm to retail. So we haven't sold wholesale trees probably for at least five years. Um, I probably get at least 50 calls a year looking for wholesale trees. I responded to two yesterday. Pretty much the entire industry is sold out of wholesale trees. I don't know of any for sale anywhere. Um, so we are just going to continue at this point with retail. We keep planting more and more every year, hoping that we'll catch up and maybe be able to do it someday. But at this point, we're still trucking along with on-farm retail. That eight-year growth cycle has got to be brutal because, I mean, we raise beef cattle and even trying to project out two years about what you're doing is bad enough. And that's, you know. I'm not sure if it's an art or a science or what it is, but we just... Yeah, it's, it's, we, and we do, I mean, Grant and I both are very mathematically based people. So we have charts and diagrams and pie charts and bar charts and all sorts of things trying to project um, as best as we can. It was interesting for us in 2016, 17, 18, 19, our sales were, you know, going up in a nice steady way. We were really happy with how things were going and then COVID hit. Um, like every other business out there, we were terrified. We had no idea what to expect. Um, we were absolutely floored. I mean, we talked about not ordering in merchandise. We talked about so many scenarios because, of course, our season was towards the end of that first COVID year. And we decided, no, we're going to be optimistic. We're going to just do what we were going to do. We're going to bring in all the merchandise we were going to. We're just going to hope for the best. Um, by the time our season rolled around, um, a lot of the really hard restrictions were lifted. People could come in the building. We had capacity limits in here, but our sales went through the roof. Everyone, it feels like the entire city of Ottawa found us this year. that year. Um, they were looking for a place to get out of the city, come to the country, get out 
have some fresh air, have an open space to be in. Uh, there is real drive for supporting local shopping local, which also really helped things. So in 2020 and 2021, our sales just exploded. And then in 2022, it pretty much stayed around level, went up a little bit, but that was okay because again, we have an eight year um, supply chain issue to get more trees. So uh, yeah, we're one of the fortunate businesses for whom COVID was actually beneficial, um, not detrimental. So the way trees grow, um, I grew up in an area where we grow seed corn. So you want every plant to be exactly the same. If folks want a short tree, do they get a younger tree or do trees, do they all grow at a pretty consistent rate? Um, yeah, they, I mean, they do within reason. However, what happens is in our fields, you know, say we do have some death loss. So the next year, uh, you know, if we plant a field one spring and we, the next spring we like, oh, you know, there's some death loss here because there's a low pocket or, or an area, whatever happened. Uh, we'll remove those dead trees. We'll hand plant new trees into that row. So we'll do that for two years. So within that same field, you could have trees planted in three subsequent years. So therefore, you do get different sizes of trees. So yeah, we sell trees anywhere from three to four feet tall. I think our tallest, we have some big old white spruce here that are probably around the 21, 22 foot mark. So we sell everything in between. I mean, the bread and butter is probably your seven to eight foot tree. That's kind of your standard. But there's lots of people who want a smaller tree and there's lots of people who have big cathedral ceilings and want a, a real whopper. I know my, my aunt and uncle have a house in Pennsylvania that's log cabin with a loft. And so half the house is open and a, even a 12 foot tree looks tiny in there. They have a, you know, a permanent setup now for like guy wires to hold their tree up. Exactly. And yeah, we have lots of customers coming in for those, you know, really majestic trees. And um, we actually have a lot of those trees on our farm just up the road from here because it's hard to grow tall trees here because people are on the farm and they want to cut them down when they're eight feet tall. So we do end up growing some of our taller trees at our farm up the road where they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they can just do their thing over there. I like that you have to have like a, a secure secret uh, witness protection program for bigger trees. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Because, you know, as much as we can try to cordon off an area and say, please don't cut these trees, there are the nice people who ask if they can cut, and then there are those who just dive under the rope and down it goes. So we, uh, yeah, it, it's better for us just to have our secret stash of big trees. So as someone who does does love a fresh, real tree and who also is an overestimator and will buy an eight and a half foot tree for a room with an eight foot ceiling and then wonder why I can't get the angel on top, that's never actually happened of course i've never just put the angel in front of the tree instead what's the best tree stand and how do we keep our tree not looking like shit kids well no it's all good so we carry we actually sell christmas tree stands here uh when we first started selling them they were canadian made out east uh the company has since been bought out by an american company so we do have to bring them up from the states now uh, we're really happy with them. They hold a ton of water. 
uh, there's three different sizes. So, you know, there's the stand for your average size tree. There's a stand for your 11 to 12 footer. And then there's a stand for the 15, 16 foot tree. Uh, the, the biggest secret to keeping your tree looking good is actually the same as fresh flowers. You know, if you have roses or carnations at your house and you let them go dry or you bring them home from the store, the first thing you do is you cut the bottom and you put them in water so that those vessels at the bottom of the tree are open again or the, or the flower or the tree are open. So the most important thing you can do when you take your tree home, put a fresh cut on the bottom of the tree, get it into water right away and never, ever, even once let it go dry. If it goes dry once, that waxy seal, that gummy seal will form on the bottom of the tree and you no longer, it will no longer take up water. And that's when you're going to experience needle loss. So some people will come in saying, well, my tree all of a sudden dropped all its needles and they'll want a new tree. And we're 95% sure it's because of something they've done to the tree. But, you know, there's no way for us to know that for sure. But generally speaking, if your tree's having needle loss issues, you've probably let it go dry at least once. I think we've just narrowed down what keeps going wrong with our trees. <laughs> Yikes. Oh. <laughs> huh. Well, then. And they suck up a lot of water, too. They do. That's the problem, right? <laughs> and that reservoir is, uh, depending on your tree stand, doesn't doesn't hold that much. And the trees actually take up the most water in the first few days. Like, you got to be watering them at least twice a day in the first few days. They generally slow down to a more consistent rate after that. But that's when it's really imperative to be under the tree at least twice a day, checking to make sure that you're good for water. How much water are we talking about? I mean, it's hard to see how much is in the stand when you're like, I don't know if yep. it's just me laying on your stomach with like a watering can in one hand and your kids are going, what are you doing? And the cat's under there. And At least the cat's under and not up the tree. That's been known to happen too. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the amount of water that it's going to take up is going to depend on so many things. Like how big is the tree? What was the temperature when you cut it? Um, just there's a there's so many variables, but, you know, a bigger tree can can easily, you know, take up a couple of liters of water in one day. So um, depending on the amount of water that your stand holds, that's why you really need to be down there checking regularly. So the first few days, that's where we need to uh, focus. And then the rest of the season, you're good to go. Well, yeah, sort of. Yes. Yeah. But keep on top of it. But that, yeah, that's a good good reminder. Yeah. If you don't let it dry on those first few days, then you've, you're off to a good start. The other thing we do is when a customer buys a tree here, they're given a little business card type thing, which has all the care instructions on the back. So we don't leave anything to chance. We also have instructions on our website on how to care for your tree. So if you're a rookie or if you're um, a veteran real tree person who's experiencing some problems and you may need a refresher, uh, it is all available on our website. Those are good reminders. So you said earlier you were talking about the all the people that end up working for you every year. And a lot of them, like you said, have ages that start with one. Um, what are some of the ways you found that work really well to hire and retain teenagers as employees? Because, I mean, um, people like to talk about kids these days. And yet we know that there are lots of teenagers out there. And as farmers and people who are running businesses, we end up needing to hire some of these people. So what are some of your tips for, for working with teens? And is it any different when they're your own kids versus somebody else's? So we are in, I feel, a really unique situation here. Um, we have so many people apply to work. 
I can't take them all. I don't have work for all these people. I'm sitting on a stack of resumes for teenagers, for adults, um, all the time. I don't know why. I don't understand how in such a seasonal business, because um, we don't have work year round for people. You know, we have two employees that work kind of mostly around, but even the one goes off and works for my mom at the sugar bush for a couple of months. So we're amazingly fortunate to have this incredible pool of employees that just sort of keeps showing up and resumes keep arriving and people keep asking for work. Um, and, and that's all the way from kids who are 12, 13 years old wanting to apply to a job to, you know, we have uh, some employees in their late 60s working for us. Um, so I think what we, we're in a sweet spot because our kids are of that age that their friends want to work for us. Um, that's an amazing tool to recruit staff. Um, like I say, it's hard work. It's physical work. But we try to do things like every summer we have a staff party. So one year we took them to Wonderland for the day and bought them fast passes. One day we, uh, or one year we took them axe throwing. Last, this past summer we took them zip lining over the Ottawa River. So we try to do fun things uh, as a summer staff party. And then we have another staff party in January, uh, you know, we have a, a big meal here with everyone. We bring a caterer in. We do some completely silly games. I mean, it's absolutely hilarious. So much fun. And uh, and somehow we're able to keep, maintain, retain, a, and recruit more staff than we know what to do with. Um, is it difficult with your own kids? In some ways, yes. We have higher expectations for our own children than we do for outside labor. We expect our kids, our own children, to know things like how to drive tractors, how to put air in a tire, how to run a chainsaw, um, their their knowledge, uh, what they've learned from us. They just seem to have a higher skill set than friends of their own age who maybe didn't grow up with those same opportunities. But, you know, we've we've had employees that we've literally taught to drive the farm trucks, like put the key in the ignition. This is how you turn the key. Now you have to put your foot on the brake before you put it in drive. Um, literally teaching kids to drive from the ground up. Um, we have all sorts of abilities, skills, personalities, but you know, it, it's an amazing group of people. We have a ton of fun. And uh, yeah, like I say, we're amazingly fortunate. Well, that means that you're doing something right too, right? If there are people who come back and who want to work for you, then that says something about you guys as, as managers and owners too. So that's, that's a compliment to you too. Thank you. Thank you. Which I think you should uh, <laughs> take on because that's, yeah, that's a good, good problem to have. Yes, it is. I'm wondering too, if it's the same in trees as it is in livestock that I'd rather have somebody I train because I know that they're going to do it the way I want it done. And that I'm not going to hear any argument about, well, this is how we've, you know, I'm not paying to hear about how somebody else did it. I'm paying you to do it the way I asked you to do it. Uh, yeah, we don't, we, I don't know if we've ever had um, any staff really show up with tree experience, to be perfectly honest with you. When our old, when our second son, Neil, who's in Ridgetown uh, last winter, his first year at school, he actually got a part-time job on a Christmas tree farm down in that area, because why not? And uh, it was a very different experience for him. Um, 
they they were of that mindset. They didn't care what he knew or what he thought. This it was my way or the highway. And he came home and all he said to me is, Mom, I've just learned everything that we should never do. So it was a great experience for him. He now understands why we obsess, plan, strategize, customer flow on our busy days and how to speed things up and how to make things most efficient and how to reduce the number of steps that customers take, we take, everything. Because he was like, yeah, mom, like when you buy a tree, there you go here and then you walk over here and then you have to walk all the way back over there and then you have to go over here and then you got to go over there. He said, it's just crazy. He said, I could have fixed it, but they wouldn't listen to me. So uh, it, that's one of those moments where it's great to send your kid off to work somewhere else because they maybe learn to appreciate you as a parent, you as an employer, and you as a business person in a different way. Well, I hope I didn't sound like a total hard ass. Most of my issue with people is when they come in and I've had people say things like, well, they're just animals. Like, well, they're not your animals, though. There are animals and we don't. We don't roll with uh, they're just animals kind of situation. They're very important to us. Don't worry. My husband has a herd of pet beast cattle. He couldn't, he, he went five years without cows and then he caved. And I think this is midlife crisis round two that he has cows. So um, he was even telling me last night that his favorite part of the day is going over to visit the cows. Thanks, honey. Um, okay. What a compliment. I'm like, I am really number two to a bunch of beef curl beef girls. But anyways. <laughs> what a compliment. So yeah, I know the feeling. They all have names. They're all special to him. So we have cows uh, that are not just animals. Well, I agree about that. Yeah, they're special. So what have you tried on the farm that hasn't worked out? What hasn't worked out? Um, Grant is a um, perpetual chronic serial experimenter. I'm not sure which is the right word to use there, but he loves to try new things. He is forever trying different planting techniques, different field prep techniques, different soil amendments, different herbicide programs, different tree species, and some have been absolute epic failures. Um, no offense, but some just don't work and some are awesome. And that is how you learn. Uh, we've also tried different products in the shop. Um, some have been awesome. Others, maybe a bit of a miss. So I think the biggest thing is to not let that bother you, to take it as a learning experience um, and then to try again. I mean, you're not going to find out what works. You're, you're not going to learn new things if you just keep doing the same old same old and that was part of our reason leaving the dairy farm not that it got bored not that um, there wasn't new things to learn but it just started to feel a lot of the same old same old and here we get to change things up a lot more when it seems like with dairy cattle and correct me if i'm wrong on this arlene that's they're not real pro change you know dairy cows now i mean i know a lot of lot of herds where even to get through the time change twice a year, it takes, you know, a week to get them reset on a new, by an hour. So I don't feel like they're real interested in experimentation. Not so much. No, they don't like you to mess with their routine. I was going to say my oldest son milks cows for a neighbor and he is at the farm at 440 every morning and he is at the farm at 440 every night. He milks seven days a week. He might miss three or four chorings in an entire year. And 
that is the son who thrives on routine <laughs> and has since he was little. So the dairy farming lifestyle fits him perfectly um, because he and the cows both love their routine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll just keep doing the same thing every day and we'll all be fine with it. Yeah. So as both an ag and a parenting podcast, we're always curious about any farm parenting tips that you might have. And you've got older kids and some older than than mine and definitely older than Katie's. So we were wondering if you had any particular uh, parenting tips other than making your kids work for other people that you uh, might want to share with people. I think the thing that we had to learn early on was what is our passion does not necessarily have to be the passion of our kids. And that's not necessarily just farming. That's sports. That's so many things in life. And, you know, we see this potential in our kids of, oh, you'd be great at this, but you want to do that. And we have to respect that as a parent. Um, I think one of the, there's so many hard parenting stages and every stage is easy in some ways and every stage is hard in some ways. And you don't, appreciate it till you can look back in hindsight. But um, I think one of the, the most difficult things is just letting that child be who they are. Um, and then they get to that stage where they're so useful and they're so competent and they're these strap and farm boys who can work like no other. And then they go get jobs for someone else and you're heartbroken. You're like, you're finally useful. I put 15, 16, 20 years into you and off you go. Um, so that's definitely not that I'm complaining. I mean, my kids are in absolute high demand around here. They could probably each have 10 jobs if, uh, if they could do it. Um, everyone seems to want them because they're very skilled for their age. They're very strong, hardworking kids. Um, but yeah, that's definitely that one of the hard stages is letting them go when you really now want them to help out. Yeah, that's right. And then you got to train someone else's kid to do those same tasks. <laughs> exactly. And and unfortunately, usually the kids we're bringing in and training don't have the same sure, yeah, level of ability. So, you know, we often joke about um it's going to take 3 employees to do one meal day. Like it'll it we need 3 teenagers to replace meal. You know what I mean? And and that's just the reality. That's not putting our teenagers down. They just don't have the same experience and skill level because they didn't grow up doing what he's done for years. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we need some sort of teenager exchange program where we could just yes swap teenagers so we get good ones back. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I, I need to swap for uh, some a techie kid. I need my kids to go learn some techie stuff to help me out in that department. So that would be great for me. <laughs> I think Arlene's got some pretty techie kids. I, I might have some of those. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Okay. Perfect. Sounds good with me. My kids are five and a half and almost seven. So they're very confident in their skills. Don't hand them the remote. No, don't give them, <laughs> don't give them electronics. Yeah. I think the other difficult thing when they get older is teaching them adulting. I didn't, I didn't understand how difficult that would be. Um, teaching things like getting insurance setting up your CRA account, setting up a business, setting up your payroll, setting up your agricore crop insurance. Um, you know, you, you always think about potty training them and teaching their ABCs and their one, two, threes and getting them through school and getting them all their reading levels. But all of a sudden it's the real world stuff like, hey, mom, I'm, I, I think I want to maybe look at buying a house or buying a farm. How do I get a mortgage? Okay, so here's some real world stuff that we're dealing with now. So it's, uh, it's amazing how thankfully 
as the kids are getting older, they think I'm getting smart again. So that's great because there was a few years they didn't think I knew much, but now they think mom and dad actually know a few things. So that's a great stage. Oh, that's reassuring. So once you get to like where their number starts with a two, is that where they start to appreciate you a little bit? The, the late ones, the early twos, suddenly it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, mom and dad are pretty smart again. <laughs> their, their advice is relevant again. Well, that's helpful to know. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, I know, Pam, I don't know if this is something you're seeing in Canada as much, but we see a lot of, well, kids these days can't can't drive a manual transmission and can't write cursive and this, this, and this. And I'm like, well, did you teach them any of that? Because you can't really be mad that they can't drive a stick shift if you don't own a vehicle that is a stick shift. And Yeah, and if we take cursive writing out of the curriculum, they're not going to have a signature. I've got kids who don't have a mm-hmm. signature. Because they didn't learn cursive writing. So it's like, okay, I guess that's something that I have to teach them. But I didn't didn't think of that because I was like, well, that's something that school is going to take care of. I'm not a homeschooler. I don't need to teach them cursive writing. But then they go to sign a document. It's like, oh, it looks a little weird if you just print your name in block letters. But I guess that's your signature now. Yep. We have the same thing. As someone with, with younger kids, you know, if if it takes them a couple months longer to learn all of their letters they will learn it. You know, there's there's a whole school and 12 more years of practice on that. But things like, you know, at least in the States, getting health insurance, getting car insurance, buying a house, whatever, you know, the, the consequences for taking longer to understand how to do it can be really expensive and really uh, dire if you get it wrong. So, yes. Well, we live in a house that uh, some people might deem old fashioned because I still believe there's blue jobs and pink jobs, mostly because I don't want to do the blue jobs. I don't want to like put wood in the outdoor wood furnace. I don't want to take the garbage out and and things like that. So Grant and I have very differing skill sets. He's the farmer. He's the machinery guy. He's the tractor operator. I have somehow morphed into being a business person. Um, should have taken a BCom at Guelph. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but you know, we'd each tried to pass along our individual skill sets to our kids. I can't back up a wagon to save my life. Like it's just, I, I just, it's just not my thing. Um, Grant's taught them to do all that. I'm the one that's teaching them the business side of things, the paperwork side, how to run a business. Our third son bought two tractors at the age of 17, does a snowblowing, um, uh, business in the town of Elmont. So you know, guess what? Dad teaches them how to service the tractors and how to fix things. And what happens when you break a shear bolt at three in the morning when it's minus 20? That's a dad problem. How to do all the business side of stuff is my problem um, in teaching them. So we're trying to impart our own skills and our own knowledge onto them. And uh, we can just hope we're doing it right. They're learning enough. And hopefully we can launch them as independent humans uh, at some point in life. Yeah, there's so much to, to teach them. That's the thing, eh? You forget how much you know. Yeah, and you think eventually the job is done, but I'm learning that it's never really done. No, um, don't let my mom know this, but I do keep still learning stuff from her all the time. Just don't <laughs> tell her I said that. Yeah. My mom listens, so I will say that I still learn from my mom, too. <laughs> I've probably learned things from Arlene's mom. <laughs> yeah. So you already talked about some of the challenges to parenting. What is have been some of your favorite parts about raising kids on the farm? I think one of the neatest things now, especially as they're getting older, is seeing them work together. Um, you know, I was saying my oldest does 
a lot of the cash cropping. He's renting land from us. He rents land from my brother. He lets, rents land from my uncle. And seeing him say, hey, I need help with this. Can you come help me? And the, it's the brother he's asking. Um, you know, it, it's so neat to see. And even sometimes the youngest brother, you know, Todd needed help one day and he got Graham, who's seven years younger. Graham's only 15, but that was the brother that was available and Graham could help him out. So it's really neat seeing those relationships develop, um, not just as friends and sometimes enemies growing up, but now a real working relationship and a real respect in each other's skill sets, um, each other's businesses. You know, as much as they tease each other and, and it's a crazy house living with five guys, let me tell you, it's so rewarding to see them now. I, I really hope, I, I feel, I hope, I want, I dream that they will work together, they will support each other, they will help each other out. I don't necessarily want them to go into business together because that can be its own set of challenges. But even if they're local and, and can support each other and help each other, that would be an awesome dream. I guess the goal is you know, that especially those of us who have more than one kid, that they grow up and end up liking each other in the end, right? <laughs> exactly. If we can do if we can do some things right, <laughs> that we raise people who, who like each other, then that, that'll make our lives easier too. I often think back of all the scraps and the injuries and the so-and-so hit me over the head moments. And I think, man, I hope this is all going to work out in the end. So that leads in well to what have some of your biggest parenting challenges been? And also... What's the trick for getting pine sap off everything? A, there's an interesting two-part question. Yes. Well, it seemed like it fit here. Like So parenting challenges. I think the, the one of my biggest parenting challenges was I, I've never been so amazed at how my kids, it's all the same recipe. I call it the same recipe. Same mom, same dad, same house, same upbringing for the most part. How they've turned out so incredibly different. I mean, they, they look similar, but they look different. Their personalities in some ways, I mean, I have, like I was saying, my oldest is Mr. Regimented, schedule, routine-driven, dairy farmer kid. And then I have others that are completely the opposite. Um, I have ones that are risk-takers. I have ones that are not risk-takers. So I think that one of my biggest parenting challenges is I don't even have a gender difference. I have all boys. So, you know, some people who have a boy and a girl like, oh, well, it's because their gender is different. Well, that's great. I have all boys um, and they're so incredibly different. So the challenge is how to parent each child based on their personality and their needs at the moment. And going back to when I was potty training, people are like, oh, by the fourth man, you must be a pro at potty training boys. Oh, heck no. They're all so different. It was like I was doing it for the first time every time. And it's like that way with everything in parenting. You think you got it figured out with the first one and number two, nope, breaks the mold. Number three, breaks the mold. Number four, there's no mold left. Like, you know. Yeah, that won't work with me. <laughs> yeah. With the first, I was like, you can't watch any bad TV and you're not going to drink any pop and you're just going to live on, you know. And then by the fourth, I'm like, well, you're seven years old. You fried your own eggs. Good job. Because otherwise you weren't getting fed today, kid. And you've given up caring. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it is amazing how um, your parenting changes. There's so many changes and it's all about, for me, it's all been about, you know, parenting each child the way they needed to be parented. And in that moment, I've had 
kids who were incredibly strong-willed, stubborn, difficult little people to the point that I didn't know how I was ever going to get them through. Um, and now they're the easy ones at this at the older age. And then I've had others who were like that easy go in, no problem, little kid. And now they're the ones who are causing me the gray hair and the grief as a teenager. Um, so it's not even just about the kid. It's about the kid in that moment. And tree sap, tree sap, just take uh, hand sanitizer. Any type of alcohol-based product will get tree sap off anything. We actually scrub our floor at the end of the season with like isopropyl rubbing alcohol. Problem solved. Is there anything that can't be removed with some form of rubbing alcohol? I haven't found anything yet, but I'll keep you posted. Good to know. Good to know. I saw one of our uh, previous guests asked the other day about removing blue Sharpie from a floor, but did not specify what kind of floor it was. And my answer at least was hand sanitizer. And if that doesn't work, pour a bottle of wine on it. The answer is alcohol either way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because if it's carpet, you're going to have to replace it anyway. So just spill some wine. Pretend that's what happened. Yep. It's not about your parenting. <laughs> it was just an accident. Yep. And don't replace the carpeting and the kids are at least in their 20s. There's just absolutely no point. I've decided I'm just going to leave all the, the wall art and the floor stains and everything until my kids are old enough to have kids and then they can deal with it. So when we sold the dairy farm house, um, the people who purchased the farm, we went in the next summer and she invited me into the house and said, hey, would you like to see what I've done to the house? And I said, sure. She was like, are you going to be upset that I've changed the house? I said, oh, man, no, like it's your house. I live there. I had it how I wanted it. This is your home. I have my home. This is your home. I said, the only thing is I really hope you were able to fix up the living room. And she said, yeah, like what happened in there? And I just said, um. Yeah, I said uh, the toy bin was in that corner. So they just threw them from across the room. She's like, oh, that explains it then. So, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I uh, I found out the hard way that our house is, I mean, I knew our house was 118 years old, but uh, flat paint over plaster, you can't remove those marks. And I'm not going to paint until I know they're not just going to do something else. And I figure that's going to be about the time that we're ready to move out and let them take over. So I'm just not going to worry about it. All right. So we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at the county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. Well, I think what I would win is uh, maybe not a category at the county fair, but I've always felt like I could get the title of queen of carpooling uh, when my children were young. And we were on the dairy farm. Uh, I had four very athletic young boys. You know, the three oldest were under three under three years old. So they were in baseball and they were in soccer and they were in martial arts and this and that and the other. And Grant uh, was always in the bar until eight or nine o'clock at night. So for me to allow them to participate, because I always said I was not going to be on a dairy farm and tell my kids, oh, sorry, yeah, you can't play soccer because, you know, we're busy. I wasn't going to be, uh, I wasn't going to stop them from opportunities that they wanted to pursue. So I could have kids playing soccer in Brussels, Bayfield, London, and Godrich all on the same night, get them there with all different vehicles. Like, honestly, I just needed those air traffic controller batons. So I think that was my superpower when the kids were younger, was just the queen of carpooling. Nice. That deserves a crown for sure, because that is a skill. And now do they, does, is it just like managing which vehicles are where? <laughs> because a lot of them can drive them, drive themselves. 
Thankfully, we don't have that problem because they all buy their own vehicles as soon as they have their G2. So it's more trying to convince them that I'm still their mom and they need to tell me where they're going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So days don't pass and you're like, I've seen that one. Does he still live here? Yeah. So we'll go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment. Listeners know you can send in your cussing and discussing entries on the SpeakPipe or at our email. Check the show notes for both of those. Katie, what are you cussing and discussing this week? Arlene, I would like to cuss and discuss backgrounds in photos because it is so frustrating, you know, now that we live in this social media era and you're like, look at this super cute new calf. I'm going to take a picture of this. Oh, everybody's going to love this. And then you, you go to take a picture and you realize that there is nowhere that you can photograph this calf that is not showing cow shit or a fence that needs fixed. Or And like, that's reality, but it's not real Instagram friendly. You know, nobody wants to Instagram a pile <laughs> well, of cow But we're shit. supposed to be authentic. Yeah, but not like authentic, authentic. Like, aesthetic authentic okay well i mean canva does have that remove background thingy now if you want to uh, you could take a picture of your calf and just put it like in a field of clover or something oh that's a great idea no one will notice that it's like late october in iowa and or that weird like those weird backgrounds that we used to have the option for for school pictures with like the lasers behind us you know like the 90s uh... oh i'm gonna do one with like the calf with the you know where it's like the the cat with like the two cat heads superimposed behind it like those old like glamour shots photos <laughs> yeah all looking up in the corner yes but yeah i mean just trying to get photos of your kids that don't have some something in the background or you know or your kids just taking all their clothes off and you're trying to take a picture where it's not obvious that your kid's naked because pam one of my kids is a <laughs> naked baby yeah for life and just the minute you turn your back she's naked so it's you know fine less laundry but it does make it hard to to publicize things capture the memories pam what do you have to cuss and discuss this week so cuss and discuss maybe i'll just call it my biggest pet peeve in life right now um i think the thing that's driving me the most crazy is the whole issue we have in our gift shop right now um i I, at the end of every day, I'm stewing and there's there's smoke coming out of my ears. And it's the issue of parents are parenting different than they used to. Parents will come in and say, oh, honey, don't touch. Just look with your eyes. Oh, no, honey, just don't, don't touch. And the next thing you know, the kid's arm deep in a glass of a display case of glass stuff. And I think, yeah, you know, it's important to teach your kids to look with their eyes and not to touch, but don't do it here. Because when your kid is going to break something, and they're going to break something, because this is they're literally like the proverbial bull moose in a china shop. They might be little, but those things pack a punch. Um, you're not going to want to pay for what your kid broke. So you know what? If your kid is misbehaving, don't bring them in. If you can't control them, pick them up, hold their hands or something like that. Breaking something that you don't own is not how you teach your kids a lesson in life. If you break it, own up to it. Show them how to be the responsible person. We're living in this age of entitled people right now, and we see it more and more every day, and it's really frustrating as a parent, as a business owner, because, you know, we're trying to teach our kids to do the right thing. So we need everyone else to pony up 
and do the right thing too. So that's my current rant and pet peeve is, you know, yeah, it's a lesson. Don't, don't be teaching it here if you're not going to live up to the, uh, to the consequences. Yeah. So you, do you have people who just like break stuff and walk out? Oh, we have people who break stuff and walk out. Some will say to them, oh, you know, my kid broke this. No. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, you need to pay for it. They're like, well, no, I don't. Yeah. So here's what, yeah, here's what it costs. Yeah. Or our bigger pet peeve are the number of people who just hide it. Oh. Like we'll go around at the end of the day and find all sorts of broken stuff. Um, I had one lady just rip a strip off me because I watched her kid terrorize the place for 20 minutes. Of course, she broke something and I made the parent pay and she was absolutely livid with me. She's like, but we were being honest. We told you we broke it. Yeah. And I said to her, well, do you go to work every day and do you expect to get paid to go to work? Well, yeah, I go to work and I get paid to work. I said, well, this is how I get paid. I sell stuff. So this is my job and this is how I support a family of six. So, you know, so that's my biggest pet peeve, my rant. And every day I am cussing and discussing with Grant at the end of the day. You believe what I yeah today. That would be incredibly frustrating. It it really is. Well as the as the parent of littles who because of the pandemic and living out in the country and that, they're basically feral. Like I'm the first one to admit that. But we go places like the farm store where they really can't break anything to practice not breaking stuff. Like your shop sounds amazing. There's no way in hell my kids could go in there without it being a very, very expensive shit show. Or we can look through the window <laughs> and uh, play outside. Yeah. So you just work up to that. Well, we were the parents that when our kids misbehaved in church, which I mean, there was years we wondered, why are we going to church? Because one of us inevitably sat in a vehicle with a kid strapped in a car seat, absolutely wailing. Because they were misbehaving. But I don't see that anymore. I don't see one parent dragging the bad kid out and dealing with the temper tantrum. It's always just keep the kid happy and let them have what they want. And I I, I worry. I worry about, um, you know, this level of entitlement and, and how it's going to progress and, and where it's going to end. And are, is it going to ever correct? What makes me really sad is it seems like it gets blamed on the kids a lot. And kids have grown-ups for a reason. And there's a reason that kids don't just show up randomly. You know, there's they have parents for reasons. <laughs> yeah, they didn't get there by themselves. <laughs> exactly. You're out in the country. They didn't show up at your shop <laughs> solo. I mean, there are a few neighbor kids who do just randomly show up, and that's okay. But uh, they, they know. You can give them a job. I actually warn everyone on our road. You're either getting hired, your kids are getting hired. That's just the way it's going to be. You live on the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is life. You're close. If there's a snow. Yeah. If there's a snowstorm, I know you can still get here. My kid can snow can plow a path right to your house. So Arlene, what do you have to cuss and discuss today? So I'm going to go with the Christmas theme cussing and discussing. And mine is that I intentionally wait to decorate until after my kids' birthdays, which is a choice because I have two December birthday kids. So I wait and don't put out the Christmas decorations until after the birthdays are done. But I have so much nice Christmas stuff that then I only get to enjoy it for a few weeks. So I really should change that tradition. But then at the same time, it's so much work to put it out. And then I really don't like putting it away either. But then you go to a store like Pam's and you're like, oh, but that's so cute. And that's so cute. And it would make my house look so nice. 
And you always want more Christmas stuff, or I always do anyway. And then when I'm pulling it out and putting it back into bins, I end up regretting it. So I don't know what the solution is because it is pretty once it's there. It's just the, the whole process. I should just go hang out in the store and then I uh, <laughs> don't have to decorate my house. Right, Pam? So Arlene, if you're bored and you're looking for something to do in all your spare time, you can just get a job here like everyone else. She's giving you a job, Arlene. Yeah, between milking. <laughs> exactly. And parenting and kid pickups and drop-offs and all that stuff. I mean, you'll have time to slide out. I'll go make some wreaths for sure. Yeah. So thank you, Pam, so much for joining us today. I know you've got a tour of seniors coming out to chat with you soon, so we should let you go. But if people want to check out your website, see what you have at the store, or if they're in Eastern Ontario and want to come get a tree, where should they find you online? Uh, we can be found online at www.cedarhillchristmastreefarm.com. And uh, like I say, we are the self-proclaimed biggest Christmas shop and farm market in Eastern Ontario. So even if you don't want a tree, come check us out because there is literally something for everyone here in this store. Absolutely. And you can go and get lunch and buy some beautiful Christmas stuff. Just don't break it till you get it home. Yes, please. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. Thanks, Arlene. Thanks, Kate. Thanks again, Pam. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter, we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.